Welcome to the Smallholder Food Business Development Institute podcast, episode 24. Welcome to the Smallholder Food Business Development Institute podcast, where we are building profitable food businesses, one product, one process, one thought at a time. Now here's your host, Dr. Michelle Fannin-Steele. Hello, my fellow foodpreneurs. It's an amazing day. I'm down in the Hudson Valley and there's no snow and the birds are singing. And yesterday I was a little chilly, but I walked around without a coat. So much fun. So fun. So welcome to episode 24 of the Smallholder Food Business Development Institute podcast. Can't believe we've been doing this for two quarters. It's amazing. I get such good reviews on the podcast when people talk to me and they're so excited that I have made this. And if you want to be super helpful, it would be amazing if you went and you left a five-star review over on your podcast listening method of choice because it really helps the SFBDI podcast get out there because of course that's what triggers the algorithms and our lives are in fact dominated by algorithms. It's great. So anyway, today we are talking about receiving refrigeration and storage and it is just this sort of nitty gritty topic that I totally geek out about because the way you do one thing really is the way that you do everything. And if you do your receiving your refrigeration and storage correctly, you know that you have your process in hand because if you show up to this stuff, you're really kind of showing up to everything. It's the rare place I walk into, though, where all of their receiving refrigeration and storage processes are going as planned. Usually, some parts are working and other parts less so, and it can be hard to keep all the plates in the air with this SOP. And so this week, I'm going to give you some strategies to deal with it so that you can get it under control. Because... In many cases, your production process and your production flow is going to live or die on receiving refrigeration and storage. So it's important really to understand why we're tackling this topic. You know, after sanitation, this is probably the SOP that you deal with the most on a day-to-day basis, and it probably gives you the most headaches and takes up the most employee time. When you decide to clean up your receiving refrigeration and storage SOP, you're going to do the work. You're going to make decisions and have a clearer head, and that means you are going to make more money. You're going to be more confident in your processes and your employees. And as we always say, you're going to sleep better because you will be less stressed. And frankly, you're going to build a better business relationship with everybody because receiving refrigeration and storage touches so many of your internal and your external clients. Wouldn't that be amazing if something so pedestrian as receiving refrigeration and storage could help you build the wealth and community that you so crave in your work? Well, that's what we're all about here at SFBDI. And so let's, you know, let's just dive right on in. 
So the first question is, why do I lump receiving refrigeration and storage together? Well, it's because they are almost always one continual process. And in most places, if you look at the process and the process flow diagram, they make up two thirds of the work of receive stuff, store stuff, process stuff, package and label stuff, finished product storage, and distribution. And especially if you think of distribution, which is really the next company's receiving step. So knowing that receiving refrigeration and storage is actually the bulk of your work, I ask you, are you thinking about it that way? And if not, why not? Most of my clients look at receiving refrigeration and storage as an afterthought to processing. But I promise if you are doing receiving refrigeration and storage right, processing and your eight ways of lean are going to be a much bigger challenge. So if you're not, if you're not setting yourself up for success with receiving refrigeration and storage, you can't make it so that you can even understand your eight ways of lean because you're so in the thick of it. So where do we start? Well, I always start with what are we receiving? And I want you to ask yourself the following questions. So I promise this is going to be one of those tech talks where you're going to have to listen to it a couple of times. So just be okay with that and write these questions down and go back and look and come back. So the first question is, is do you have a list of approved suppliers? Why is that important? Because in almost every facility, if you are receiving from non-approved suppliers, you are not creating the conditions to create safe food. And, and or you are missing a critical control point if you have a supply chain preventive control. So the second question is, is do you have a list of what you receive? And this one I ask because you have to receive certain stuff from certain suppliers. And out there in the world, especially around packaging and random stuff, you know, this this happened to me in a um, in a in a vet practice I was I worked with. People will just send you packaging. They'll send you labels. They'll send you maybe not necessarily big processing equipment, but they'll send you equipment. Um, I you know I had I we had somebody send a. Uh, anesthesia scrubber and then just bill us even though we never ordered it so having that ordering system in place can really save you a lot of money next if you are going for SQF or BRC audit and certification do you have incoming product specifications okay this can be super challenging for small people and and what one of the places where my clients have the hardest time is they may have some finished product specs, but having incoming product specs is super difficult, but it's also incredibly important. If you don't have these things, you really, really need them. The epic amount of time, money, and energy wasted when you bring stuff into your building that isn't up to spec, or even worse, not from a supplier you've bought anything from is completely ridiculous. And I know I harp on specifications, but incoming specs, outgoing specs are so incredibly important. These incoming specifications 
are huge because in many cases you aren't controlling the hazard in your product your supplier is and this is true in many different ways are you doing organic processing well you need to make sure that everything that's coming in is organic that's a specification folks are you processing hogs for charcuterie and are you using a pqa plus program for trichinic control well, you better believe you need to have a specification and that every single carcass needs to meet it. In a preventive controls plan, if you have a supply chain preventive control, receiving is actually a critical control point. And in fisheries HACCP, receipt is almost always a critical control point for the control of histamine. You have to understand the hazards associated with your incoming raw ingredients, where they're controlled and how, and this is why we show up to our receiving refrigeration and storage SOP. So what does a raw product spec have? Well, much like a finished product spec, it needs to have the name and packaging of the ingredient. It needs to have the microbial profile you are willing to accept. And if you've got questions about that, just send us an email at sfbdi at dirigofoodsafety.com. If the product is truly raw, you have to know, are you and how are you controlling for the microbial hazards? Those can be fairly easy specifications. If the product is ready to eat and you aren't controlling for those hazards, well, then you need to be much more vigilant for things like salmonella, shigatoxin E. coli, and listeria. You have got to know what these microbes are and how they are controlled in your food. And so how about allergens? Do you understand the allergen profile of your food? And I want you to remember the big eight as we call them, dairy and eggs, soy and wheat, shellfish and scale, scalefish or finfish, tree nuts and peanuts. If you are selling to Canadian or European markets, be aware there are other allergens like sesame seeds and mustard that you have to be aware of. All that paperwork, it's all done before any product crosses your doorstep. And now, once you've got all of that thinking process done, remember we think first and act second, now you've got to go look at your loading dock. If you receive everything in the same place, how are you making sure that you aren't creating hazards on your loading dock? Well, what am I talking about? Well, there's more to hazards than microbes, right? There are chemical and physical hazards. Do you have broken pellets lying around? Physical hazards to the food, folks. Do you have busted bags of salt and sugar lying around? One, that's gross. Two, super wasteful. And three, how do you know that's not going into the food? How about your chemicals receiving? Are you leaving the bleach or the quat out on the loading deck? How, how does that fit into your chemical hygiene plan? Do you have a chemical hygiene plan, folks? <laughs> how do you know that your soap isn't cross-contaminating cross your food on your loading docks? And I wanna be really clear here, everybody. The problem isn't, the, the, the soap probably isn't contaminating the food, but the success and the profitability of your business rests on creating the systems so that you know, without even having to look or even really think about it, 
that that cross contamination isn't happening. The more you think about your raw ingredients before they hit your dock, the more you make decisions ahead of time and the more profitable you will be. It is that simple. SOPs help us make decisions ahead of time. And I wanna point out a couple of variations between processes that people need to know about receiving, okay? So pay attention, friends. Number one, if you are a USDA inspected plant, okay, it is very likely that you are not going to have a CCP at receiving. This may change if you are using a PQA plus certified pork producer and that is your control for trichinella. The question really is, are you controlling for trick or making it not reasonably likely to occur? I mostly lean the latter because the USDA really doesn't like receiving CCPs, okay? There's almost nothing truly that you can control for at receiving in how the USDA thinks about this step. Now, if you are an FDA inspected plant, listen up. If you are an FDA inspected preventive controls plant, so you fall under 21 CFR 117 uh, subpart C, so chapter C, and you have a supply chain preventive control, receiving is a preventive control step and you must address it as such here. That means you have to have monitoring in place. You have to have corrective actions in place. You have to have verification. You have to have validation, okay? It's much more intense than if you just have an approved supplier program. If you are in an FDA regulated fisheries plant, in all likelihood receiving is a critical control point. So that brings us to storage. Storage can be very straightforward if you let it be. First of all, you need to be able to track things in storage. So you have to make sure your traceability is squared away. You of course need to use the concept of first in, first out. And if your storage is a hot mess, which so many of the storage um, facilities I see, and, and by storage facilities, I mean, I don't mean like, you know, a cold storage warehouse, like Americold or whatever. I mean, like the cold storage facilities that you have. I have been in places where it is floor to ceiling stuff. I have no idea how the air circulates. Clean it out, okay? That stuff is not making you money. It is costing you money. Throw stuff away, people. Next, you need to be able to prove that cold things are cold. And yes, the USDA has asked me that question. I had to provide them the Tomkin paper to prove that meat stored at 40 degrees is actually 40 degrees. It's the Tompkins paper. You can Google it, or if you need a copy of it, email us at sfbdi at dergofoodsafety.com. Completely ridiculous. All right, most importantly, if you have refrigerated storage, you need to be able to track that your cooler stays cold, okay? So it's not enough that your cooler is cold, you have to be able to prove that your cooler is cold, <laughs> okay? 
So what do you do? One, you buy a Bluetooth data logging thermometer and make sure it comes with a calibration certificate. Yes, this does make it more expensive. Almost everyone I know use a thermo, uses Thermoworks or Magtech. They're both great companies. No, I don't get a kickback. Um, and for heaven's sakes, Bluetooth it to your phone, people. Take your thermometer probe, mount it to a wall in the warmest part of your cooler. This is by and large nearest the door. If at all possible, take that thermometer probe and put it in water. This allows for continuous acceptable reads while accounting for the cyclical nature of how your refrigeration compressor actually works. Because, you know, you go through, war like, it warms up. It doesn't run all the time necessarily, um, and it can warm up. And if you keep it in water, the thermometer probe stays the same because the water temperature really isn't going to change. I want you to set your coolers to 36 degrees Fahrenheit. Make sure, again, that that thermometer is Bluetooth to something that sends a message to your phone with an alarm if the cooler hits 37.9 degrees Fahrenheit, okay? We call that an operating limit because life gets very difficult if it goes above 40. I want you to hang a chart on the outside of your cooler that has the following data entry points. So like print out something from Google Sheets or Excel or whatever, all right? Date, time, temperature, initials, all right? And if you've done this well, all you're gonna have to do is check your cooler temperature manually twice a day for 90 days, all right? Then we're gonna back it off to once a day and then you're gonna sign off on your refrigeration logs that come out of your Bluetooth thermometer once a week, all right? Much, much easier than the way you're doing it now, I suspect. Few more notes. One, if, and I'm just gonna reiterate this, if you're USDA, it is incredibly unlikely that storage is gonna be a critical control point. In a preventive controls plant, Storage is not a preventive control, okay? In preventive controls, it is incredibly unlikely that your storage step is going to be a preventive control. It's not a preventive control in USDA. It's probably not a preventive control in a uh, FDA preventive controls plant. However, in fisheries, storage is almost always a critical control point. And if you want to understand this, you have to look in chapter 12 of the Hazard Guide, especially page 225. Know it, love it, make it a storage CCP. Okay? But when we're writing your HACCP or your preventive controls plan, your hazard analysis for storage is probably the same for all the different kinds of storage that you do. Receiving storage, work in process storage, or what we call WIP storage and finished product storage. You don't have to repeat your hazard analysis for all of those steps. In your fisheries plant where you have a storage critical control point, finished product storage and work in process storage or receiving storage is all the same critical control point because it's the same thing that you're doing, even if it is a different physical location in the plant. Receiving refrigeration and storage is probably one of your more time-consuming paperwork tasks. My fellow foodpreneurs, be on top of it. Stay on top of it. 
all of that product moving through your facility costs money. And the faster you move it through, the colder you will keep it, by and large, and the better quality, the safer, and the more profitable product you will actually have. So that's what we got for you this week for episode 24. It's been an amazing time uh, bringing all of this information to you. Folks, five-star reviews, it really makes a difference. Everybody have a super awesome week. Thanks. Hey, foodpreneurs. Have you thought about joining that power group and you're not really sure how to do it as a corporation? Well, I have super news for you. Starting this month, we are actually having corporate subscriptions to the power group where up to five people can join the power group. Y'all get workbooks, you get access to the membership site, access to the calls, emails to me to ask questions uh, so that you can come together and grow as a group. And I'm offering this super amazing value at just like, I mean, 50% off of the regular price. So five people from your corporation can join up with the power group for only $5.97 a month. It's super amazing. I would love to see you there. And if you want to join up, you can go to www.sfbdi.com slash power group and click on that second button on the page that says I'm interested in a corporate subscription and it'll take you right through there. Thanks so much. Have a beautiful day. You've been listening to Dr. Michelle Fannin Steele on the Smallholder Food Business Development Institute podcast. We hope you loved the show. For more information and show notes, please find us at sfbdi.com. Thanks for listening. Thank you.